0: I want you to open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. We've been looking at this, the central section here in the book of Numbers, where the people are in the wilderness. They are wandering, but they are anticipating going into the promised land. So they've been given the promise that God rescued them from Egypt, and he will give them the promised land. Now all they have to do is believe the promise and take hold of it. And so let me read Numbers chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, for which, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, each one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Pran according to the command of the Lord. All of them men were, who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names, from the tribe of Reuben. Shamua, the son of Zachar From the tribe of Sh- Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Eagle, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sadi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vafsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, the son of Machi. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, "'Go up into the Negev and go, and go up into the hill country.'" And see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negeb and came to Hebron. Ahimon, Shashai, and Talmi. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the Valley of Eshkol, and they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron, to all the congregation of the people of Israel, in the wilderness of Paran at Kedesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea. And along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the man who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of a great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Let me pray that God would apply the truth of his word to our hearts. Father, we ask that you would work in us as we listen to your word, that we would come expecting you to to challenge us that we would come not expecting to, to merely be left where we started but that we would expect your word to confront our sin to expose our selfishness and so Lord I pray that you would you would teach us the truth of your word Lord that we would not merely learn lessons which we could apply to the people of Israel but that your spirit would apply lessons to our own hearts to our own lives so Father we come asking for your grace we come as a people dependent upon you we come in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Have you ever wanted to have your name in the Bible? I mean, that was a question that I asked uh, my, my classmates when I was a high school senior. I, I, I was going through notes earlier this year and found that this was like, this passage was the first like formal lesson I gave. I was a, my, my youth pastor let me teach at, formally at youth group because I was heading off to college. I was planning to pursue gospel ministry, and so he wanted to let me test that call. And so that's that's the question I asked my classmates. Have you ever wanted to have your name in the Bible? Now last week you heard my brother's names, Michael, whose name is, is here, but it's scattered throughout the Old Testament. But more than that, he's the archangel who comes in glory. My younger brother Stephen, a man full of the Spirit, a man who was willing to give his life for Jesus, and Kevin, Yeah, nope. It's not in there. Now, my my kids, they're all guaranteed. They, they, you know, David, Leah, Samuel. I mean, they're all guaranteed to hear their names when we read scripture. But but we want to be remembered. You want your name in the record book. Your name in the program because of the solo for which you've practiced. Your name on the trophy which you can hold high. Your name on the, the award you take home from the science fair. But but just having your name in the Bible, that that wasn't specific enough, was it? Do you want to be remembered for your biggest failure? I mean, you heard me sort of stumble through these Hebrew names. But 10 of the 12 men whose names are listed won't make it past chapter 14. Now, I'm, I'm sort of giving away part of next week's sermon. There are only two, and... And Caleb is the spokesman in our chapter, who stands up and claims the promises of God. Because this passage sets before us the promise that God is giving to his people. It's there, right, look back at verse two. God decides to speak to Moses. And then in verse two he says, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Do you hear the promise? The land is yours. Why? Because I am giving it to you. God has guaranteed this to them. And so this should be the moment. These chapters in Numbers should be the triumphant moment in which which the exodus reaches its climactic conclusion. God saved his people and gave them the promised land. Amen. And And yet, the list of names reminds us that that not all of these men will be faithful. But even the list itself, remember, we call this book Numbers in English because the book starts with a list of names and how many numbers of people were in each clan. The reason that they counted was because they needed to know how many swords to make. They needed to know how big the army would be because the whole point of this was that God was leading his people into the promised land. So the very fact that, again, we have the list of names, should be a reminder of the promise of God. God himself has promised to go with them. God is going before them in the, in the cloud. God is with them in the, in the tabernacle, and God has made a promise to his people. And so this scouting mission should, should really be pretty straightforward. Go and figure out what it looks like. Figure out what kind of land it is. Because there are memories of the land that go back to the time of Abraham. But the the people are, are, are sending these men. Verse 16 says, to, "To spy out the land, to uncover what's there." There verse 19, we're told that they'll to find out if the land is good or bad. Is this the place? Do, do the promises of God ring true? And even the, the places that they visit when they're in the land, we don't, we don't get the full itinerary. I mean, they could have traveled at a, at a minimum probably 350 miles over the course of these 40 days. It could be 500 miles traveling through this land, going from south to north and, and east to west and covering the land. Now, now, remember, the land of Canaan is a small little fragment of land. I mean, relative to Delaware. I mean, if, did you ever play that game online? How big is this compared to Delaware? There's a website that lets you do that. You can just go... And you, you, you can compare two pieces of geography, and I always pick Delaware. And, I mean, it's great. You get to see, like, is this country? Is this continent? How, how big is it? Compared to, I mean, it's not much bigger than Delaware. But it's a journey on foot of 40 days as they're traveling through the land. And, and, and the places, then, that we get specifically mentioned are, again, meant to remind us of God's faithfulness. Look at verse 22. They went up into the Negev, so that's sort of the, the desert area to the south, and they came to Hebron. Now, Hebron is a place of great promise because it's connected to Abraham. If, you, if we were to flip back in the, to the first book of Moses, to the very first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, that it was at Hebron that, that Moses came and settled. And it, it's actually there that God made uh, the, the promise of the land, that he reiterated this promise to Abraham. In, in Genesis 13, verse 14, we read that The the Lord said to Abram, this was after Lot had separated from him. The Lord said to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also could be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, And he built an altar to the Lord. Hebron is the place where God reiterated this promise that this land belongs to you and your descendants forever. It's the promise of God. And remember, Abraham Abraham didn't ever own land. Well, he did. Remember, what did he own? He owned a burial plot. And where did he buy this burial plot for his wife? In Hebron. And so the, the mention of Hebron is a reminder of the promise, and yet, yet what else do we find there? We find these descendants of Anak. We, we, we find the, the giants there in the land. And the Valley of Eskol, mentioned because of the, the, the grape produce, this cluster of grapes cut down and taken back to the people. And so what's the report that the spies bring back? They were sent to to check it out, and what do they come back and say? Well, immediately we realize that they are proving themselves faithless. Look at verse 27. It, it, it's subtle, but commentators point out that it's an unusual way to describe the land. Verse 27, "We came to the land to which you sent us." Now how would God introduce the land? The land which I have promised to give you. It, it, throughout the, the books of Moses, the land is connected with the promise, but what do the, the, what do the, the, the ten spies say? Uh, Moses, we only did this because you made us do it. It's the land you sent us to. It, it seems subtle, but they're removing God from the equation. They're undermining the promise of God. Yes, they say in verse 27, it flows with milk and honey, and they show forth the fruit. And so, so in that assessment, they were supposed to go up and find, is the, the land bad or good? Well, they'll say, the land, it's good. I mean, look at, the, look at the fruit. The people, well, that's bad news. Because, verse 28, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Descendants whom later in the passage, verse 33, they'll, they'll say, are, those are the descendants of the Nephilim mentioned in the, the beginning of the book of Genesis, the giants in the land. There's no way we can take the land. And so, so the people, verse 32, or these spies, verse 32, brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. They say that the land is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw in it are of great height. We saw the Nephilim, and so we seemed to them like grasshoppers. The, they began their report by hinting that God couldn't do it. They say it directly at the end. It's impossible. The report is bad. Not merely, I mean, it doesn't mean it's a, a poorly filed report or an incomplete report. I mean, it, the, the language when, when that word is used elsewhere in the Bible is that the report that they bring is evil. That, that they come with negativity and strife and falsehood. The report is evil because they are evil. Evil. The spies are challenging the very promises of God. But look at verse 30. When the, the ten spies bring the report, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Thankfully, there is a minority report still to be given. There is a, another opinion, and this is the opinion that we were meant to anticipate at the very beginning. God has promised the land to his people, and if God goes before us, then let's go up at once. We, just, we were sent to spy. This was, this was just our quick reconnaissance mission. The promise still stands. It, and actually, I mean, it, it doesn't matter how big the cities are. Yes, that was what we were tasked to do. Hey, but good news when you go in and take that land, there's stuff already built for you. Like the work is, is partly done for you. I mean, because, because Caleb's, Caleb's words in verse 30 are, are, are optimistic. Not that, he, not that he disagrees that, yes, we seemed like grasshoppers. It's that, well, it doesn't matter what we feel like. It doesn't matter what we look like. We have the very promises of God. And so, so a passage like Numbers 13 forces us to ask the question, do you trust the promises of God? Do you believe the word of God? Now, I don't mean empty platitudes that people give you when, when things are going poorly, and somebody says, well, you know, everything will be okay. And there are moments when, when we need that reassurance, and there are some moments, if the problem is small enough, if you've scraped your knee, and, and you just need a reassuring word, then, then that phrase could be true. But, it, but in the face of some of the challenges that, 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 you, that confront you, just, just hearing the words, everything will be okay, well, you sure? Or when somebody offers you the platitude, well, you know, they're, they're, you know there's, there's nothing to be bothered by here. See, Israel doubted God's promises. They doubted it daily because they, they wondered if God would provide for them daily. We've heard their grumblings in these chapters. They doubted God's promises because it's now been more than a year since we saw like a giant miracle like crossing the Red Sea. It had been centuries that they were in Egypt Centuries since Abraham had been at Hebron. And so time and trouble lead them to question the promises of God. Now you and I don't need centuries to get to that place of doubt. Maybe it is years for you of questioning God's goodness, of wondering how he could really be at work. Or for all of us in these days and months of uncertainty, we question the very promises of God. We wonder does does God even care? Does He notice? Is there any hope for us? See, but our hope rests not, not in a, an, earthly, an earthly land to which we will go. Because even the promise made to Abraham was a promise that was meant to point us beyond this small strip of dirt to a bigger promise. We can think of the way the author of Hebrews, and this is toward the very back of the Bible, this, this is describing the, the ministry of Jesus. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, we have a reminder of the promise made to Abraham. That Abraham was promised uh, numerous descendants, he was promised this land. In Hebrews 11, verse 13, we read that, that all of these people who heard the promise died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. See, even Abraham, who who only owned the grave in which he was buried, could hold on to the promises of God. Why? Because Hebrews 11 verse 16 says, As it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Abraham's hope was never in that, that piece of dirt in front of him. It was in the promise of God that God would be with him, that God would dwell with him in the new heavens and new earth. And, and so, so Hebrews continues, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, I can't, I can't tell you what's going to happen this week or next. I mean, you, you know, you got emails from me in consecutive days because I, I, as, thing, as things changed during the course of, of a week, of how many people would be allowed to sit in this room together. I can't predict what's coming. I, I, I don't know. And, and you, You've heard me talk about Donald Gray Barnhouse, a pastor in the middle of the last century. He, he would, in order not to waste time on the weekly news, he got a daily newspaper, but he would wait until Friday, and he would read them backwards. Because most of what's reported in Friday's newspaper tells you everything that you needed in the other... And the, the other days, and so, so those pages can quickly be flipped through and, and, and added to the bottom of the birdcage. You don't really need to consume the news every single moment. And so maybe for some of us, that, that's what we need to do. We just need to set it aside, we need to turn it off, we need to, to shut it down. Because the, the promises that we're holding out for aren't promises for the, 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 the next moment. They are promises that, that stretch into eternity. And so when God says that you have a promised land, you and I can trust it no matter what happens. The despair or the elation that you feel when election results are reported might indicate that your trust is placed not in the kingdom of God. Your hope in, in, in what will be reported by the CDC, and, and I pray along with you for good news on that front, I'm not saying it's unimportant, I'm just saying there are bigger promises that you can stand on. The shaky promises the world gives you might crumble and fall, but there is certainty here. And so we can, can like Caleb, rise up and say, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's take the promise of God and let's believe it. Because no matter, how, no matter how tiny you feel, like a grasshopper about to be crushed, God is bigger than your enemies. God is bigger than your fears. And, and I know, I know some of you were thinking, okay, but, but this is part of the problem with Christians. You always just sort of brush aside the problems, like real life problems, and like, let's just talk about heaven. Let's talk about things that are, that are past this world. And so you're, you, you feel like you're maybe, as Christians, that the, 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 your, your perspective as Christians, you're just no good in this world. Because all of your hope is placed in another world. But, but as Christians, we, We have hope in this world because of the world that is to come. We have hope that things could change now because we have a God who is in control. And and honestly, if if you think that, then then the reality is all of us have to ask questions about in whom or what do I place my trust? Where can I go? Where do I think things are going in history? Because if your purpose is only defined by what's happening to you in this moment, then, then then a selfish response would be completely acceptable. So the reason that we as Christians are called to care for our neighbors is because we have a promise that is secure, because we have a God who is a God of all people. See, we can care about the things in this world because we hold firmly to the promises God has given to us. Peter describes it for us, for us as a living hope, a hope rooted in the future because of the resurrection of Jesus, a hope that is coming, but it's a living hope that you have right now. I, I, I read these words at, at a graveside this week. In 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a living hope now. Why? Because you have an inheritance that is imperish- imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, the hope that we have in the future, this, the certainty of God's promises, changes our perspective Now. I can't guarantee you tomorrow but by putting your trust in Christ you can have the guarantee of eternity. So we need to stop and hear the promises of God. That's why Sunday worship is so important to us because it reorients us to what is most true. The, the newspapers that, that, that are scattered through our lives of, of all that happens, then we're reminded, let's open the word of God and let's find out what is true. Where are the promises of God? Because the book of Numbers proves to us that when we are faithless, when we are evil, God shows his love. Jesus Christ is the one who died for us, the one who gives us a living hope, the righteous one who died in your place. Now I've never had to do a baptism for kids with these names. Shemua, Shaphat, Eagle, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabi, Geul. They got their names in the book. A testament to their faithlessness. And yet there are two other men, Caleb... Hoshea, whom we'll begin calling Joshua, because the Lord saves. That's what his name means. Yeshua. Jesus. The Lord saves. So they put their trust in the name of the Lord. See so just having your name in the book isn't enough. You need to be on the right side, counted among the faithful. Now, it was perhaps the most foolhardy way to end the Baseball World Series ever. In 1926, the New York Yan- Yankees were down by one run. But, but with a walk, they have a man on first base. The tying run is on. It's all the drama you could hope for. Game seven I mean, this is the way you would make it up if you were playing it in your backyard. It's game seven of the World Series, bottom of the ninth inning. This is the last chance. Two outs, you're down to your perhaps final batter. The tying run is now on base. And the base runner decides to take matters into his own hands and tries to steal second base. He, he's, a, he's a career, 50, he gets thrown out 50% of the time. And that, that, you know, the, the modern statisticians would tell you that, that being on second, yes, it's an advantage, but it's not a big enough advantage to risk the very last out of the game. He, he, he's a runner who, who, who is very unlikely to make it. And the announcer calls the play. He says, one strike on Bob Musil, going down to second. The game is over. He tried to steal second and is put out by the catcher. It's perhaps the worst way to hand a World Series to the other team. Okay, I mean, maybe bumbling a, like a really obvious error would be worse. I mean, it would be better to stand and, and look at the third strike to end the baseball game. To be caught stealing second for the final out in a one-run game in the World Series. And you know his name. I mean, I, I'm sure you know his name. Not because you are baseball fanatics who know the details of the 1926 World Series. I mean, if you have heard of the game of baseball, then you know this man's name. Babe Ruth, caught stealing to end the World Series. The Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the Hall of Famer, a, a World Series champion. Yes, of course he comes back the next two years and helps his team win the World Series. He, he, one of the most dominant players of all time. We remember his name, not for his greatest failure, but for his accomplishments. See, your hope and mine doesn't rest in our next at-bat. Your hope rests in the grace of God. You don't need to pick yourself up from second and dust yourself off and wait through the off-season. Now is the moment of salvation. Jesus, your Savior, has proven himself faithful. Because if your name or my name was on the list, if Kevin were in the Bible, it'd be in a place like Numbers 13, listed among the faithless. But we worship a risen Savior. The Savior whose name is above every name. That at the resurrection, he is given the name the Lord. He is God himself raised from the dead. The Savior who offers us living hope. And so because of Jesus, the promises of God stand secure. Let me pray. Lord, I ask that you would expose in us our sin, our faithlessness. That we would understand our, our place, our In your story, that in our own strength, we have sinned and deserve punishment, but in your grace, if we receive it by faith, if we confess our sins, then we are forgiven. Lord, we thank you for the picture of faithfulness we have in Caleb and Joshua, but more than that, we thank you for the the, the righteous faithfulness of Jesus, our Savior. Father in heaven, we are a people who need to hear your word, and we need your comfort. And so Lord, I ask that you would turn us away from the sorrows, the sadness, the the uncertainties of our lives. That you would help us to turn from sin and find our hope in Jesus. So Father in heaven, we come giving you praise in Jesus' name, amen.